Matthew 5, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 16. The Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. A number of years ago, Marty and I uh, honeymooned in Napa, which is outside of San Francisco, one of the big vineyard growing regions of our country. And we went in February, we got married in February, so when we go back for an anniversary, it's in February, which if you, if you don't know, February is the season when no one goes to Napa, so it's perfect because you get like hotel deals, restaurant deals, and just no one's there. Um, but it also means that there's, not only is there no fruit on the various vines and the various vineyards, there aren't even leaves. So you're literally driving mile after mile and seeing acre after acre of just the, the beauty and symmetry of, and I'll put it up here, of the trellises and then just these woody vines that have been trimmed back to make it through the winter and to get stronger and healthier. And as a part of the different times we've been to Napa, we've done some of these different tours with the people that own the vineyard or actually like dress the vines. And it's, it's fascinating to hear them talk about these structures that they say, yes, it's symmetrical and yes, it's kind of cool to see row upon row of this sort of thing. But they said, there is no healthy vine without this kind of structure. And they go into it and they say, you know, unlike a tree that's designed to support the weight of its own branches, a grapevine cannot support the weight of its own branches once it gets to a certain point. So if they grow too large, they actually drop to the ground and can break and you lose all that fruit. So they said, you know, they're there to support the weight that can't support itself. Obviously, they're keeping these clusters of grapes up off the ground where they can be easily trampled, where, you know, different creatures can get to them more easily and just steal the fruit. There's also disease and rot that comes to that fruit if it's just laying in the dust, laying in the dirt, getting water. Um, if you've been out there, you know that like mustard plants, these beautiful yellow flowers grow in amongst all the rows, but there are weeds as well. And it's keeping it up out of all of that. And you know, we learned that they're, they're actually 
designed and trained a certain way where they're, they're up here and they're laid out in a certain angle relative to the sun during growing season so that the fruit gets exactly how much sun they want that fruit to get. Not too much that it bursts the fruit and it's ruined, but not too little that it doesn't develop the flavors of the fruit. In short, if you want to have healthy vines and abundant fruit, you have to have these trellises that support and that shape the plant. Now, in John 15, Jesus says that our lives as followers of him are kind of like that. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, my father is the vine dresser, and he's giving this analogy of how we bear fruit. We have to be, number one, connected to him. We have to be connected to Jesus. And this is kind of what we talked about last week. So by way of quick review, we'll put this whole overview up. So we're talking about following Jesus, which is discipleship or spiritual formation. And we've come up with this chart, which is a way of explaining how we follow Jesus. And the first thing I want to point out is that over here on the left-hand side, and I know this doesn't show up simultaneously on both, so I'm using the right-hand screen. Sorry for... Actually, are there more people over here? Maybe I'll use this side. Um, We talked last week about the portal that is the gateway into following Jesus. And what we said is, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, there's a point in time where you first become a follower of Jesus. If you're going to go on a journey with Jesus, you have to take a first step. And scripture is very clear, as we looked at last week, that that first step is repentance and faith in Jesus. You change your way of thinking about sin, about Jesus, about idols, about what it means to follow him, and you confess that, and you put your trust in Jesus, and that's what we looked at last week. Now, this week, we're going to focus down here on the bottom of this, and I'm using the word paradigm here to describe this, and we'll come back to that in a moment. So, last week, again, just summarizing, this is what we said, key idea, following Jesus begins with responding to the gospel in repentance and faith, and by taking that first step that his grace calls you into, repent and believe. And that brings us into connection with the very life that God intends for us. Not that our works merit anything, but our, but our repentance and faith bring us into contact with the grace of God, which is then what's giving us life, okay? So we have to be connected to Jesus Christ He is the vine, we are the branches, we are drawing life, we are drawing sustenance, we're drawing our everything from this organic faith connection with Jesus. But as I began, we also have to be connected to the trellis. The trellis is a framework, the trellis is a structure that provides that support and shape to our lives. And one of the things I've just been thinking about over the past couple months as the elders have worked to develop this particular model is just thinking like, I, I want my life to grow on the pattern of Jesus' life. I want there to be a, a framework, a structure that looks like Jesus. And I'm just saying, train me on that frame. Train me in that paradigm. Train me on that trellis where you're cutting away the things that do not follow that pattern, but you're strengthening and you're feeding and you're supporting the things that do look like that pattern of Jesus' life. By the way, the goal of the Christian life is not to grow the trellis. 
as cool as those pictures were and as beautiful as those trellises are, the goal is not, let's see how much trellis we can get. And I know maybe some of you even, be, even come from a Christian or a religious background that's like, let's, you know, if some trellis is good, then more trellis is great. And the idea of just setting up more and more rules and more and more frameworks and more and more things to remember, and that's not the idea. The goal is not to grow the trellis. The goal is to grow the vine and to bear fruit. And you need a solid trellis. You need the right shape of trellis, but you only need so much trellis to do that. And that's what we're trying to do this morning when we come down to this part down here at the bottom about the paradigm. Now, I use the word paradigm because it comes from a Greek word literally that means to like examine something side by side. And what we're doing with each of these that I'll show you in a moment is we're saying, we're examining three key words in the bold text. And we're saying the Christian life following Jesus is more about that than the thing underneath it. We're examining it side by side. For a more modern definition, and thank you dictionary.com, a paradigm is a framework containing basic assumptions, ways of thinking, and methodology that are commonly accepted by members of a community. So we're looking at a framework. We're looking at ways of thinking, patterns of thinking about following Jesus. And to just simplify all of that, this paradigm is just simply God himself in his words saying, grow like this, not like this. A paradigm, a framework, just grow like this, not like this. Edith read for this, this morning the first 16 verses of Jesus' most famous sermon. It's often called the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to notice at the beginning of that that it says, He called His disciples to Him, and they sit down, and He begins to teach them. Okay, and that's really important because the whole sermon that follows, Jesus is not giving you Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to say, if you do all these things, then you can become a disciple of mine. If you practice all the things I'm about to say, then I will accept you. Then you can be saved. What he's saying is, you're already following me in faith. Now, let me show you what life in my kingdom looks like. Or to use the analogy I started with, let me show you what life in the vineyard looks like. And he gives us three chapters, not of how you earn God's favor, but simply, here are the kind of practices. This is the kind of person that you can know. You look at this life and you're like, that's what the life of Jesus looks like. And I would encourage every single one of you, whether you're a follower of Jesus yet or not, to go back to not just the few verses we read this morning, but to these three chapters, because there's no section of Scripture outside of these three chapters that gives you a more concise and clear idea of the life that is living in right relationship to Jesus. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, we're going to zoom in, and again, these three words are up here, because in Matthew 5, in the verses that we read this morning, you see these three important attributes of the paradigm or the framework that Jesus is telling us to grow in. It's about identity, not information. It's about a lifestyle, not an event. And it's about community, not doing this solo. And before I jump into those, I want to introduce to you a key idea, which I kind of touched on last week, but I didn't say it this directly. The key idea is you are all always being discipled by someone or something. Every single person is a follower of someone or something. And if you're not actively, intentionally following Jesus, 
you will default to following someone or something else. Our entire culture has certain basic assumptions about right and wrong. Our culture has certain assumptions about this is the way the world works. These are the things that you should prioritize. These are the things that not are, are, are not important. And the only question really is who's training you? You know, if you think a certain way, it's not because you just had that idea out of the clear blue. It's because someone taught you to think that way. Uh, if I say it a little differently, if you're not a deliberate disciple of Jesus Christ, you are and you will be the default disciple of someone else. You know those moving sidewalks at the airport that get you around a little bit faster? That is culture. And my point is, if you merely stand still in the midst of our culture, culture's moving you somewhere. And they may be moving you relatively slowly, but, but you are being discipled. You are moving. You actually have to actively move yourself in the direction of Jesus and frame your life on the pattern of Jesus in order to be anything other than just the drift of where culture is going in its discipleship of you, okay? Because Western modern culture is a paradigm. Our culture is relentlessly indoctrinating you with what you view, with social media, with the thing in your hand most of the time, that you're checking all these things on with the, where you get your news from, ideologies that are input in education. It's all over the place. And here are three basic things you're going to hear from our culture, okay? And I'm contrasting this with these keywords that we're going to come back to. The first paradigm of our culture is individualism. And you probably know that autonomy, this idea of, of expressive personal freedom, and individuality is perhaps the preeminent virtue of a progressive Western culture. It's, it, it sounds like this, you do you. Speak your truth as if your truth is something different than the truth, but, but that's the idea. Be true to yourself. Do whatever you wanna do. Be whoever you want to be. You hear this, get rid of toxic people, and toxic people are anyone who challenges you. To our culture, family is dispensable. You change friends as often as you change like a social media profile or something. It's, it's like you're not really doing life with anyone over the long haul. No one has permission to speak into your life in a way that's confrontational that says like, hey, love, compassion sometimes confronts and says like, stop hurting yourself. And you're like, no, I don't, I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. I just want to be who I am and do what I want to do. I, my, my major life decisions, I'm not going to talk to other people about those because those are my major life decisions. Those choices are mine. A second key word is information. And we live in what's called the information age. And the information that you have access to is not only expanding exponentially, but it's accelerating exponentially. And what's even scarier than the fact that we have all this information, all this data, all these facts or so-called facts, is the fact that now with your smartphone, like you can pull that out and you have all of that information in the palm of your hand that goes with you everywhere you go all the time. And so everyone's an expert on everything, okay? And there's kind of this death of expertise that it's just like, well, I can, I can do a Google search in you know, and it tells you like 2.7 seconds and you get 1 billion results. And you're like, see, now I'm an expert. I have, I have information. And we act as if the sum total of success in life is having more information or better information than other people. So individualism, information, then a key word, another key word is, of our culture is instantly. 
meaning there is no delayed gratification. It's like if I can't microwave my meal and go to Jiffy Lube and speed date, like I'm just wasting my time. Everything has to be now. It's like I hate waiting. I hate sacrifice that I think contributes to the kind of life that, that people in the past with integrity had that kind of life. And it's like, I don't want to wait for that. I don't want to invest in that. If it's worth having, it's worth having right now. And family, our culture is discipling you to believe these ways. It's about me, my individuality. It's about right now. It's about information. And we are growing our lives on that trellis of individuality, of instantaneous results, and of just, just information. Just give me the facts. But in what we read in Matthew 5, now coming back to the text, Jesus sets up a framework for following him that's almost completely opposite of our culture. And here's your key idea for this morning. Following Jesus is a lifelong communal journey of living in the reality of your new received identity. So some keys there. Following Jesus is a lifelong communal journey of living in the reality of your new received identity. Okay, now let's start looking at these keywords. Identity, not information. So we're coming back to Jesus, and we're coming back to this text, Matthew 5. Now, Jesus was far more than a rabbi, but he was not less than a rabbi. When, when God the Son, think about that, when the second person of the Trinity decides to incarnate himself, come in the literal flesh, he could, he could have been anybody he wanted to be in a sense of what, what identity does he take on as the Son of Man. He comes as Jesus of Nazareth. He comes as a Jewish rabbi, which means teacher. And maybe we hear teacher and we think that person that stands up in front of a classroom, or maybe now like the person that's hosting your Zoom call for your online class, and they're dispensing information, right? Maybe it's a history class or a science class, and they're, they're telling you the facts that you need to memorize. They're telling you the dates that you need to know and what happened on those dates. And, and we think of, okay, there's, there's facts, there's data, there's truths, there's formulas, all of that to remember. And that was certainly a part of the rabbinic model, but it wasn't the main part. And here's a key. The rabbinic model was not primarily about communicating information. It was primarily about imparting identity. I think a useful word and a useful idea is that of apprenticeship. So instead of, I think for us to really understand this and what it means to follow Jesus, don't think of the history teacher telling you dates and facts and like what happened on those dates and facts and these names and all that. Think of a welding class. And you are an apprentice to a master welder. Now, do you need some information? Do you need some facts to become a welder? And the answer is yes, you need some information. But what you do instantly is you, you take that information and you put the gloves on and you start working with it immediately. And you're working with something, you're testing something, and you're using the tools of the trade to, to make something, to practice something. And the, the teacher is not just telling you right or wrong, they're inspecting the work and they're saying, okay, here's, here's what you got right, here's what you got wrong, here's how you make a stronger weld, and, and so on. And what I want you to hear is like in the process of this, you're not just learning information, you are becoming a welder. You're becoming a certain kind of person. 
Now as you look back to the Sermon on the Mount, notice this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Then he gets into this section of like, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, you are a city set on the hill. Notice none of that is like, do this, don't do this. He's talking about identity. He's saying, this is who you are. You're already disciples. My disciples are gathered around me. I'm teaching them. But again, it's not about information. It's about imparting an identity. It's about helping you understand in relationship to me, this is who I am. So this is who you're becoming. You're becoming these kinds of people. He's not saying that the, you know, starting over in the, what's called the Beatitudes, these blessed categories of people. He's not like, you know, basically no Christians are like this. But if you're a super saint and you're meek, well, then you're blessed. No, he's like, this is the life of one who's following me, and you're happy, and you're blessed, and you are prospered because in me you're becoming these kinds of people. Now, you can live contrary to who you are in Christ, or you can live consistently with who you are in Christ, but it's who you are in Christ. Because this Jewish rabbi who is the son of God is imparting identity. Let's go to the second of these key words. Notice it's a lifestyle. The paradigm of following Jesus is a lifestyle, not an event. And we looked last week about how when Jesus is calling his first disciples, remember those first two words are, follow me. And and no pun intended, but if you're going to follow Jesus... That assumes a process, not an event. Following someone is not an event. It is a process of taking steps. And then, well, now they're going here. Now they're leading here. Now they're adding new instruction and we're going there. It's a process. It's a lifestyle. I'm going to have time to do this this morning, but I do encourage you again to reread the whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 this week. And notice it's, it's, it's all a lifestyle. It's not an event. So when he says stuff like, love your enemies, do not be anxious, let your light shine, you can't be like, okay, cool, check. Right? Like turning your life over to Jesus so that you don't battle anxiety all the time, that is not, check, got it. Or he says stuff like, don't commit adultery, and you can't be like, well, I didn't that one time, that check, I did these other times. No, it's it's a lifestyle. It's, it's a continuing thing. It's a process. You know, he says, when you pray, when you give, when you forgive, and those are things that we do and keep doing over and over. We're praying. It's not, yep, I had that conversation with God. Check. Yep, I read my Bible that time. Check. Um, but we, in an American kind of Western mindset, things are about the event, the checklist. Okay, got it. It's off my Trello board. It's off my to-do list or whatever. And it's just over. And Jesus, the rabbi, is like, no, 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 you're, you're coming with me. And I'm calling you to an entirely new lifestyle, not where you sit there with check marks and say, did it, done it, or doing it tomorrow. But these are practices of a lifestyle. Now, this is important because when we, um, if you can go back to the whole overview, when we come in a couple weeks to these 10 practices, which are living up here in the gray oval. These are the core 10 practices that Jesus called all of his disciples to to do. 
But I want to tell you what those are and are not before we even get to them. Those are not how you earn your salvation or God's favor. Those are not some legalistic, moralistic, self-righteous code. Those are not a formula for your best life now. Those are not a checklist. Did it. Okay? Worship. Did it. Sunday. I went for an hour. Did it. Done. Okay? Those, those are not those kinds of things. These are components of a healthy relationship with God. These are aspects of a new and counter-cultural lifestyle. It, this is what a continual walk with God looks like. These are also, by the way, fruit that grows on a healthy vine. And the reason we're giving you any trellis at all is because you can't just say, well, I just, I just want to be connected to Jesus, just me and Jesus, and I'm just going to grow and it's all going to be healthy. No, we need some framework, some structure, some paradigm to say, this is how I'm growing my life on the life of Jesus. But then when that healthy framework is there and you're connected to Jesus and you're present with Jesus and you're listening to Jesus and you're following Jesus, this is the kind of stuff that starts showing up in your life organically, naturally, in a healthy way, not just like, it's something I got to do. So following Jesus is a lifestyle, not an event. Thirdly, following Jesus is in community, not solo. And again, going back to where we started last week, Jesus called 12 disciples, not one. And then when he teaches them and trains them and sends them out, he sends them out in groups. He's not like, you go do the Christian life on your own, you go do it on your own, you go do it on your own. He sends them out together so they can be coaching each other, evaluating each other, helping each other, encouraging each other. Back to what we read this morning in Matthew 5, he talks about salt and light and a city set on a hill. You know, salt is not one grain and light is not one photon and a city is not one person. These are communal nouns, collective nouns. The idea is, I, I am, yes, I am, I am light as Jesus is light, but I'm, I'm light with a bunch of other light and we're doing light together. We are light. Not just we're doing light. Scripture is filled with these kinds of collective nouns. Let me give you a few texts here. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Paul writes to these, you know, predominantly Gentile believers who have been grafted in now to a Jewish vine. And they're all growing together. And he says to them, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Or 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, listen to these. This is, this is Peter, another apostle, another follower of Jesus. And he's saying again to a group of people, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he goes on, beloved, I urge you then as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your God 
on the day of visitation. And you hear some overlap with the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 16, let your light so shine before others that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And now Peter's coming full circle. It's like, it's like he heard that sermon a few times and remembered it and latched onto that. And it's like, we are these things. But do, do you know what you just heard? Jesus and then his first followers, as they're describing who you are, they're saying, you know, you're sheep of one pasture, you're fellow citizens of one kingdom, you're stones of one temple, you're members of one body, you're citizens of one new kingdom. And all of these nouns, all these descriptors are collective. You see how that overlaps with the identity piece, by the way? These are not three distinct buckets of like identities here, lifestyles here, communities here. And we don't even have to proof text this, which is the idea of like, is there one zinger verse that says that thing that you're trying to say, preacher? And it's like, no, I don't need a zinger verse because this is the entire New Testament. That over and over again, Jesus is saying like, this is the context that you're doing your entire life in. It's about your identity. It's about your lifestyle. It's about community with other people who are doing this with you and with me. And as I use this community word, I'm not saying, don't hear me saying that there, there are no practices that I do as an individual, okay? Because no one can read your Bible for you. No one can pray for you. No one can remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy for you. There, there are things that you do solo, but the Christian life is not, we don't picture a, a hermit just off by himself or a monk in a monastery just by himself. We picture those moments of silence and solitude to get alone with God and then to come back with others and talk about what you've read, talk about your experience with God, encourage someone else with what God is teaching you, learn from other people who are like, nah, it doesn't exactly say that. Let, let's, let's talk about what that text says and means and how it's been historically understood. Do you know the New Testament is filled with nearly 50 one another commands, we call them. So it's things like love one another, admonish one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, welcome one another, be reconciled one to another, forbear one another, care for one another. And the idea is that's communal. It's not solo. To illustrate these one more way, I want to go back to Mark 1 where we started last week. I didn't want to show you the same text twice, but I want, you to, show, I want to show you that identity, lifestyle, and community are the paradigm, and, and they're, they're all over the place. So when Jesus comes to the very first disciples in Mark 1, and remember he's just come and said, repent and believe the gospel of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Then he goes to particular people who have heard this message of repentance and faith, so he goes to four fishermen and he says, follow me. Okay, if they leave their vocation and they leave their families and they're following this Jewish rabbi, you see how that's a lifestyle, not an event? It's not like, check the box. Here, sit and pray with me for a second. Okay, we prayed with you. No, he's, follow me. We are on a journey. We are, we are starting a new lifestyle. But he says, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Your identity just changed. And I actually think it's really cool that, I mean, they were, they were fishermen. And he's like, I will make you fishers of men. And there's a continuity with who you were before by God's intelligent design in your life and who he wants you to become 
but there's a call into a new identity. So in, in Mark 1, in the very first call of the very first disciples, we're seeing, okay, identity, we're seeing lifestyle, and we're seeing community. I'm, I'm call, right now, I'm calling four of you that already know each other. I'm not just calling one of you, hey, Peter, come with me, the other guy's you're a mess, you know? And they were, they were all a mess. But he's just like, okay, the four of you who are a mess, come with me. We're gonna go get some other guys who are a mess and they're also gonna come with me and we're gonna do this together. So from the very first moment that Jesus is speaking and recorded in scripture, we see this paradigm of identity, lifestyle, and community. By the way, this, this is a fascinating thing you can do with the New Testament. And we, we've, given, we've given you Bible study tools before, so you don't have to know like Greek and Hebrew, like the ancient languages of the Bible and sit there. And, um, but you can go to like Blue Letter Bible, which is a website, for example. And you know, the ancient languages of the Bible are actually some of those languages where the like singular or plural is baked into the word. Like how, how, they, how they write the word, you can read and so many times Jesus is not going to people and just saying, hey, you do this. He's saying in second person plural. When he's saying, follow me, it's not just you individually follow me. Over and over again in the New Testament, there are these second person plural. Like it's a community thing, okay? And we're seeing that over and over again. Now, in closing, I wanted to say like a couple, a couple quick ideas of what do you do with this paradigm? What do you do with these key words up here so that as we walk forward together into this kind of process, the invitations of Jesus, and then like really start working on some of these practices together, what do I do with that right there? Number one, discover who God says you are. So if the teacher is saying, Yes, there's information, but it's more about imparting an identity to you Then we would be very wise to say, who do you say that I am? Because I am who you say I am. And we have songs about that. And we have scriptures about that. I'm not, I'm not who I think I am, and I'm not who other people think I am. I am not defined by my greatest successes or my greatest failures, and neither are you in Christ. Those things are true of you, but that's not the truest thing about you. Another way of asking, like discovering who God says I am and who you are is we've, we've got to stop letting the world define who we are. We've got to stop seeking our significance and our identity. Our, our sense of self is so much bent by our culture and that particular group of people or that particular person that you want to validate you. Like, I know I'm someone, I know I'm important if this person or this group acknowledges me, sees me, says like, hey, great work, great job, you look great, you are doing great. And we've got to say, God, who do you say I am? And I'm happy to share resources around all these things. I mean, there, there are lists just in the scripture that just say, here, again, like 50 or 100 things that the Bible says, in Christ, this is who you are. Now, I'll say again, you can live contrary to who God says you are, or you can live consistently with who God says you are, but that's who you are. So discover who God says you are. Listen to that voice. Tim Keller called God the decisive validator, the, the one voice that you have to say, I'm hearing who you say I am, and it does not matter to me, and I'm learning just less and less to care about even my own opinion of myself, either wallowing in shame or self-pity or frustration or anger, 
but just saying, Father, how do you see me through Jesus? That's identity. Discover who God says you are. Number two, find your people. And as I say, find your people, your people are probably not who you think you're looking for, okay? Because some of the most dangerous things that we've seen in our culture, and you probably see it everywhere else except your own life, are this idea of like entering into groupthink or an echo chamber of like, I found my people. Well, who are your people? Well, they're people that like just regurgitate back to me what I already believe about the world and the problem. Like those people are the problem over there and it just bounces off these walls. And it's like, all I'm hearing is that I'm right and I'm never wrong. And, and we together now will go take on these other people who are the problem. And um, that, that is not the way of Christ to just enter an echo chamber of people who are like, we, are, we have it and no one else has it. People who are following Jesus are awesome. I'll just tell you that. People who are following Jesus are awesome. And I don't care if they're younger than me or way older than me, if they're a different ethnicity, a different gender, a different, like, I work in this job and a little bit of real estate and, like, running this space and, you know, knowing, like, an electrician and a plumber and a facility maintenance guy and then, like, an attorney and an engineer and a musician and a poet and, like, all these different people, like that are not thinking all the same, except that we're trying to think the ways of Jesus is a really awesome way of doing life. By the way, if you're not having to forgive and be forgiven with the people that you're with, you probably haven't found your people. God's not putting you in relationship with other people who just like think exactly like you because then some of you are redundant. Like there's no point in like, oh, we think all the same things about everything. Get people who are going to challenge you. Get people who are going to bring like the right, healthy kind of conviction to your life. Let me plug gospel communities that are launching next week. Like if you're a regular here at Grace City, I, I have a very hard time thinking of any legitimate reason why you wouldn't be a part of a gospel community, which is finding your people, a diverse group of people, a co-ed group of people, different ages, different backgrounds, different vocations, doing life together, challenging and encouraging each other, learning to pray for and support and encourage and care and sacrifice together. Those are your people, okay? So discover who God says you are, find your people, and lastly, keep going. I mean, keep going, because following Jesus is not a 100-meter sprint. It is not just that checklist, got it, done. You're going, and you're going, and you're going. It's not even a marathon. It's like a triathlon, where you're like, man, I just, and I know this is not the order of a triathlon, but you're like, man, I just, I just ran a marathon and I've still got the bike thing for a hundred some miles and the swim thing. Yeah, that's, that's more true to the Christian life that it's just, it goes and goes. And there are days where like, I, I can't, go another day. I am exhausted. I'm frustrated. I'm worn out. I feel like some of you would say like, I'm in a, a dry season with God where he's like, he's not speaking to me in the same ways that he has at some season in the past. Keep going. I mean, my advice for following Jesus is the same as my marriage advice. And some of you have heard it. Don't quit. Well, what else, pastor? Well, there's other stuff, but it starts with don't quit. Because if you're entertaining this idea of like, I could quit, well, then you're already saying, I could do something that God tells me not to do, and then I'll just work it out from there. It's like, no, you, you, you can't do it that way. You just got to say, don't quit. I'm in this. And then as soon as you're like, okay, there is no quitting, then you realize, you see how much I need community? 
to not quit? You know how many conversations I have as like a spiritual leader to others where I'm having to go to a spiritual leader in my life, a friend, a spouse, and say, I feel like quitting. I'm really discouraged about this. And we pray together and we exhort each other and we don't quit. One day, an older fish said to a younger fish, and it's not a true story. Um, <laughs> it's a fable, okay? One day, an older fish said to a younger fish, how's the water? And the younger fish said, what in the world is water? My vision for this stuff, point is, if it's in your, your environment, it's your culture, it's, what you, it's just what you're living, and that becomes so assumed and so second nature. Like, how beautiful would community be where you're like, I, I'm just growing on the trellis. And I can focus on following Christ and being connected to Christ. And I can focus on like bearing the right kind of fruit and asking him to bear the right kind of fruit. I don't have to sit here and think about, it's gone now, but identity, community, and lifestyle. Because that's the water I'm swimming in. It's like, I, I, that's just assumed. Like, of course I'm doing this life with others. And of course it's a life not an event. And of course, I'm discovering and living in the reality of my identity with Christ, not just saying, no, just, just tell me the facts. Just give me the information, preacher. Like, just, just tell me what to do. Well, there are things that we do, but we do them because we're salt. We do them because we're light. We do them because we are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So following Jesus is a lifelong communal journey of living in the reality of your new received identity, and you are invited in, whoever you are.